On the 25th of September 1949, an update on the trial against Hans M. that had taken place the day before appeared in the Austrian newspaper Neues Österreich. The trial against Martha M. began at 8.30 a.m. in the regional court. The charges are fornication and forgery. The first part of the trial took place in public in front of a crowded auditorium. The defendant also appeared today in a jacket and pants. She feels so much like a man that she answers the judge's question whether she pleads guilty with a very energetic, almost masculine, no. The press representatives have the hardest time in this trial. They don't know whether they should call the creature in pants Hans or, as the judge does, Martha. While the reporters are still discussing this, the female husband tells his, or her, more than adventurous story. You're listening to Out of the Dark, where we follow the life of Hans M., an intersex and transgender man who had been tried under paragraph 129 for changing his gender and marrying a woman. In the last episode, we told you how Tony came about finding the documents that led her to discover Hans' story. In this episode, we will take a closer look at Hans' life leading up to his trial. Who initiated the proceedings? And what do we know about his life and his marriage before the trial? We will also talk about the problems historians encounter when referring to historical figures as queer. How can we use labels that people in the past might have never used themselves? Join us as we look into what we know about Hans M. from the files that remain. It is sometimes easy to forget how much power and influence the church used to have in Catholic countries like Austria and what an important role it played in the social fabric. In the past, one of the very important tasks the church used to fulfill was to register the civil status of their members. They kept record of stuff like name, sex of a person, birth date, christening, marriage and death, the names of the parents, the godparents and the spouse. Everything was written down in huge books called matrices. These are still very useful for researchers or if you're into genealogy. Thanks to the information in the court files, it wasn't too hard to find the entry for Hans M. in one of those books. In the column for the person's name, his birth name, Martha, had been crossed out and Hans written next to it. His sex entry too had been adjusted to male. There was a note next to it, dating from 1964, ergo many years after his trial. It said, The correct first name should be Hans. The entry into section sex should be corrected to read male. It seems that in 1964, Hans M. eventually achieved to also have his name and civil status officially changed to fit his gender. Underneath his name, there was another handwritten note that had a little cross at the beginning, indicating the date of death. Hans had died in 1965, just one year after he had finally received official recognition of his gender identity. 
In the 1940s and the following decades, not all jobs were equally accessible to all genders. There were certain jobs that were only given out to men. Women were simply not considered for the position. It was therefore not uncommon for women to cross-dress to be able to work in a position they were otherwise excluded from. Hans would also benefit from living as a man opposed to living as the sex assigned at his birth. However, in Hans' case, his will to live as a man stemmed more from his gender identity than potential career prospects. He had been employed at the labor office in Graz for several years until his employer doubted whether he had indicated his sex correctly. His employer made Hans go see a doctor who identified him as a woman. As a result, Hans was not only fired but also reported to the police for having faked his personal data. When Hans was arrested in 1949, his name and sex had not yet been changed in the matrices, but he could show the police a baptism certificate that stated that his name was Hans and his sex was male. At the time of the arrest, the police couldn't yet come up with a possible explanation for how the suspect came into possession of the baptism certificate. But to the investigators, it was one of the most important pieces of evidence. There had already been doubts about Hans M's true sex. If they turned out to be true, this would not only make M a homosexual, but he would also be guilty of serious fraud because he would have deceived the state and his employer. The arrest warrant against Hans M and everything that followed is actually the reason why we know about him at all. During the course of the trial, he was forced to talk about his sexuality and gender identity to policemen, doctors and in court. These protocols and reports of Hans' statements have the form of a narrative that especially focuses on weighing male against female characteristics. Whether it was Hans' strategy to try to emphasize his gender that way, or whether it was the prosecution's questions that led to such a gendered narrative, we cannot know. You will now hear the first summary of Hans' story included in the files, which is a police report. Keep in mind that, although it is written in the first person, it is not a voluntary disclosure from Hans' side. I was born on the 29th of May 1915, as the illegitimate son of Maria N. in Graz. I never knew my father, and my mother did not tell me anything about him. Allegedly, he was killed in the First World War. My mother was a cook and married Simon M. in 1916, who gave me his name. I attended four classes of primary school and four classes of secondary school. I never had to repeat a class. As far as I know, my mother's ancestors were completely healthy and also lived to a very old age. They all died of natural causes. After leaving school, I stayed at home with my mother until I was 18. I wasn't much for female housework, but I did chop wood and I liked to go hunting with my stepfather. My half-sisters helped my mother in the household. Until I was 17, I only wore girls' clothes, but I always had a tendency to wear trousers. At the age of 18, I came to live with my uncle in Marburg. His name was Rupert N., and he was a police officer. I had the greatest trust in him, so he also got to know my condition. He got in touch with a well-known doctor, and I was then operated on in my abdomen in Ljubljana. I was told by the doctor that sexually there was something not quite right with me internally, but that he could not add anything. 
In the newspapers that talked about the trial, the reporters speculated whether Hans M. might have undergone gender-affirming surgery and how that would affect the question of his sex. Hans' statements are fairly unclear as to what the outcome of the surgical sex determination was. During the trial, he also claimed that the doctors in Maribor had told him that internally he had too much of one sex and too little of the other. This statement seems to imply that Hans M. had been identified as intersex by the physicians, but they couldn't perform a gender-affirming surgery to match his male identity. Another thing that came up a lot during the hearings was the relationship between Hans and Alma. Just like Hans, Alma was also questioned by the police. She had to make a statement about what she had known about her husband's true sex and what her sexual preferences were. During a hearing, she told the police how she had met Hans M. and how it came about that they had fallen in love and gotten married. In July 1940, I was in hospital in Marburg due to lupus and became acquainted there with Hans M. He did a nursing course at the hospital and despite being German among Slovenian doctors, was very popular. I was 17 years old at the time and completely innocent. He visited me in the hospital and at my parents' house almost every day and it made a good impression on me because after half a year he still wasn't pushy. Only after a while did he become more affectionate and we kissed. I was firmly convinced that M was a real man. After the German invasion in April 41, M went to Graz and returned to Marburg in November 41. He was then employed at the labor office. Sometime later, we had our first sexual intercourse. In March 1942, we were married. I was firmly convinced that I was marrying the man Hans M. Likewise, my parents had no objection, and nothing came to the attention of either the registry office or the priest. M asked me beforehand whether I loved children, to which I answered truthfully, I love children, but I don't want any of my own. A few months after the wedding, I discovered by chance that my husband was using an artificial penis. He said it was a prosthesis. I was stunned at first. We then had a talk and I demanded that he should reveal to me what he really is. M asked me to spare him from having to expose himself to me. According to both Alma and Hans, he had offered her a divorce, but they eventually stayed together because it made more sense financially and they still got along well. During her hearing, Alma emphasized that she had a normal disposition and had never felt attracted to other women. Hans M., on the other hand, testified that he only ever felt attracted to women and never to men. Since puberty, it was clear to him that he felt himself to be a man. And also in his romantic and sexual relationships with women, he seems to have perceived himself as the male part. His words, according to the protocol. Finally, when questioned, I stated that I have married Alma because I love her so much and because I hope that I could stay with her forever. I must say that our marriage has been quite a happy one, except for small inevitable quarrels, which, however, have not been in the sexual field. Even though I was aware that outwardly I conform to the female habitus, inwardly I feel physically and mentally that I am a man. I was well aware that I did not have the right to marry a woman, but the love and the urge to possess the girl were stronger. My wish was to be able to take care of her 
and always have her by my side. As already mentioned, it is impossible to know whether Hans M. really used such patriarchal wording like possessing the girl. But the fact that he perceived and described himself as the male part in his relationship with Alma was later on used against him by the prosecution, which we will hear more about in the third episode. You might have noticed how we consistently use he-him pronouns when referring to Hans, even though during his trial he was mostly referred to using she-her pronouns. That is because we know for a fact that Hans identified as a man and chose to use a male name for himself. We adapt our language from today's perspective when speaking about him. What matters to us is not the word-for-word -word recital of the historical evidence, but respecting his self-identification and making sense of who he was and what had happened from today's perspective. Among historians, there is an ongoing debate surrounding the assignment of queer labels to historical people. These labels usually refer to people's sexuality or gender identity. Labels rarely ever capture people's individual and complex experiences of gender or sexuality, but can be seen as a sort of shared language that allows people to share their specific experiences. Labels have a great potential of empowerment for the person using them. That is, if they are chosen by the person in question and not imposed by others. They are supposed to be an expression of one's own experiences. So what do you do if the person in question has passed away? If there is no way of asking what they identified as? What's more, what if the person has lived in times when they couldn't speak freely about what their identity was? when the words we use to describe gender or sexuality today didn't even exist back then. These questions are crucial when it comes to queer history. In most of contemporary Western history, any deviation from the assumed norm was being punished, either by law or through exclusion from society. We can therefore assume the majority of people who, by today's standards, might have identified as queer, put a great lot of effort into hiding their identity. It is therefore up to historians to interpret evidence or hints whether historical people might have been queer, which, as one can imagine, is not an easy task. Even in cases like Hans, where there is evidence that his body did not conform to society's expectation of a normative body, it is hard for us to decide what terms to use. Obviously, Hans didn't refer to himself as intersex, transgender or queer, These terms and the current implications only emerged much later. So is it okay for us to refer to him as such? Well, as it is often the case, the answer to that is not so straightforward. For a start, it's worth emphasizing that, as historians, not labeling potential queerness is not a neutral action. Our society thinks in heteronormative terms, meaning everyone is assumed not only to be heterosexual, but also to be cis meaning that gender identity corresponds to their sex assigned at birth. A person is generally assumed to be both straight as well as cis, until they come out as otherwise. Meaning, not stating a person's potential queerness amounts to letting their identity be assumed to be the default, cis and straight. Not elaborating on evidence about a historical person's gender identity or sexuality 
is therefore not an act of neutrality on behalf of the historian, but an act of implicit erasure. In Hans' case, of course, it was never a question of whether or not to elaborate on his gender or sexuality. But one could still argue, why would we use terms such as queer, intersex or transgender when he himself would have never described himself that way? To that, scholar and museum consultant Margaret Middleton writes that historically speaking, the vast majority of queer people predate the coining of contemporary queer identity terms. Historians are therefore often in a position to use labels historical figures would have never used themselves. However, Middleton explains that this situation is not specific to labels about gender or sexuality. They write, Take the words Renaissance artist and homosexual, two words that could be used to describe Leonardo da Vinci. Renaissance was coined in 1858, and homosexual was coined 10 years later. These terms were developed 300 years after Leonardo da Vinci's death. He did not have access to either word. Yet, which descriptor is contested because he did not use it to describe himself? It is only when describing an historical figure's sexuality or gender identity that mirroring a person's self-descriptive language is demanded. End of quote. Middleton further explains that, of course, language and its understanding change over time, which makes it necessary for us to adjust our language. They give the example of how absurd it would be to argue for using the N-word to describe a black person, just because that might have been the word they used to describe themselves at the time. Talking about Hans, when it comes to the labels intersex and transgender, we obviously have no record of him using them. However, we can interpret the evidence we have at hand and use contemporary terms to describe it. Interpreting historical sources, especially court files and protocols of hearings that do not represent a person's own words but often the secretary's, are of course not without error. After all, a historian's choice of a specific label might be just one interpretation of many. So does that make the label arbitrary? No, it doesn't, says Margaret Middleton. What's crucial here is who's doing the interpreting. Queer people have a much better trained eye to spot queer subtext than non-queers have. There are many examples of artworks that very clearly have homoerotic subtext that straight interpreters are completely oblivious to. Additionally, when it comes to ascribing queer labels to historical figures, The lack of queer evidence is often used to justify not using the label at all. Middleton goes on to explain that this persistent demand for bulletproof evidence of queerness is actually often an expression of reservations about queerness. Middleton writes, The fear of erroneously describing a straight, cisgender historical figure as queer looms large behind the demand for evidence. If queerness were not seen as shameful, there would be no reason for this fear. This fear is rooted in queerphobia. Outing describes a non-consensual disclosure of a person's queer identity. The dead, however, do not have the same expectation of privacy as the living. Middleton further writes, The interpretation of history is not for the benefit of the historical figure, it is for the contemporary audience, which includes queer people. 
Additionally, a closeted life is not necessarily an indication of a desire to remain closeted. Just because it was not safe for an historical figure to be out in the public life does not mean that that person was ashamed of the sexuality or gender identity. Further, outness is not a binary. A person can be out to their partner, to their family or to their community. And just because the straight and cisgender relatives were not aware of or refused to acknowledge their queerness does not mean that that person was truly closeted. It is still common for trans people to be misgendered after their deaths in their own obituaries. This erasure is an indignity and a violence. When weighing the risk of accidental queering against queer erasure, it is more just to err on the side of queerness. We can of course only speculate what Hans' desires regarding his outing or outness might have been. In the times he lived in, outing as a liberatory experience was simply not an option. Changing gender and appearance was, but as we can clearly see in Hans' case, it did have negative consequences later on in his life. We know that Hans was out to his wife. As we've heard in the protocols, both mention Alma knowing of him being intersex and trans. But we'll very likely never know how the couple talked about it in private. In the snippet we've heard, Alma claims to only have learned of Hans' artificial penis months after the wedding, even though she talks about having had intercourse with him before that. Both emphasize Alma had been completely innocent and inexperienced before. Interestingly, Alma and Hans actually contradict one another when talking about when Alma learned of Hans having an artificial penis. Alma mentions it being months after their wedding. Hans at one point says it was after two weeks. Their contradictions might have been due to a lack of understanding or communication, Or maybe it was a strategy to frame Alma as unknowing and innocent in order for her to avoid legal consequences. If that had been the case, their strategy worked. Apart from her divorce, Alma didn't face any consequences, even though being complicit in Hans hiding his true sex in the eyes of the court. We also know that when Hans was 18 and lived in Maribor, he talked to his uncle about his condition, as he calls it. His uncle spoke to a doctor, which then performed a surgical intervention which we know so little about. It is possible that Hans met or spoke to other people who were also intersex. After all, about 2% of the population are born with intersex traits. It is therefore not unlikely that during his lifetime, Hans came into contact with other intersex people, but it is impossible for us to know how openly he would have talked about his gender and body experiences. So, to sum up, we do not, and probably never will know, what Hans' desires might have been regarding his outness. We do know that he identified as a man and was very clear about his sexual attraction to women. It is a tricky question when it is okay to refer to historical figures as queer. But to advocate representation instead of erasure, it makes sense to talk about Hans' case as an example of queer history. And after all, as we've heard in Margaret Middleton's quote, the interpretation of history is not for the benefit of the historical figure, it is for the contemporary audience. Our podcast and acknowledgement of Hans' struggles to live his gender identity come too late for him. 
but we talk about his story to learn from the past and better understand the systematic oppression queer people have been suffering for the longest time and in a way still do. Join us for the next episode where we will talk more about the role of physicians during Hans' trial and how law and medicine were used to enforce each other to reach a verdict. <laughs>